Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hello and welcome to Ideas Having Sex. I am Chris Kaufman, and today I am joined by political scientist Bruce Bueno de Mesquita. Bruce is a professor at NYU and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute. He is also the author of many books, including The Logic of Political Survival, The Dictator's Handbook, and his latest book, which we are discussing today, The Invention of Power, Popes, Kings, and the Birth of the West. Bruce, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give a thumbnail sketch to start off with? What is the central aim and argument of this book? And then we can probably drill into specifics a little bit more. The big picture aim of the book was to address the origins of what people speak of as Western exceptionalism, which I take to mean prosperity, tolerance, innovativeness, freedom, and so forth. I concluded many years ago Uh, that the foundation of what we think of as Western exceptionalism uh, had nothing to do with anything exceptional about Europeans. It had to do with the signing of the Concordat of Worms uh, in 1122. In fact, this week was the 900th anniversary uh, of the signing. It was signed on September 23rd. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah, so it's a big big deal. Uh, And what the Concordat did is it established, nominally, it established rules for the selection of bishops. Uh, Substantively, it changed the incentive structure of uh, secular rulers and of church leaders uh, with respect to economic growth uh, and the consequences of growth. So what the book tries to do is demonstrate that the terms of the Concordat, which are very simple, led to a new strategic environment. I'm a game theorist, call it a game theoretic environment. Uh, And that new environment uh, meant that kings gained bargaining power with the church over the selection of bishops in those cases where the diocese in question was reasonably wealthy. If the diocese was pretty poor, the opposite was true. The church gained the leverage. Uh, and, and the reason that that was so is because what the what the concordats, and there's also a concordat in England, in London, and in, in Paris in 1107, what these concordats said is church nominates bishops, the relevant secular ruler, Holy Roman Emperor, French king, whatever, gets to say yes or no. If the king says yes, bishops install, and life goes on. If the king says no, rejects the nominee, then the income from the diocese that would have gone to the church goes to the secular ruler until the church comes up with a nominee for which the secular ruler, the king, will say yes. So the consequence of this is, you know, you you don't want to tick off the pope and the church because they can excommunicate you, they can interdict your territory, they can make life painful. So if a diocese isn't worth much financially, then the church can be expected to nominate somebody who's thought to be loyal to the church. And the king has no incentive to say no, because the punishment uh, is costlier than the money that they could have kept. 
But if it's moderately well-to-do, then if the church nominates somebody that the church likes and the king doesn't like, there's enough income to overcome the costs of upsetting the, the church, then the king is going to say no. So the church will nominate somebody loyal to the king. And if the diocese with the territory becomes really wealthy, you get the Protestant Reformation. Kings no longer care who the bishops are. Uh, they can have the money and the bargaining power that is gained in, in dealing with the church. So that's the basic idea of the book, is that we have misunderstood a lot of European history for a very long time. Uh, we have attributed Western exceptionalism to, in my view, incorrect uh, sources. And I marshal a lot of evidence to demonstrate that the claims I'm making about the logic of the concordat uh, are consistent with what happened in the data. That, that's a great summary. So the concordat, it, and, and there's three, I think, that you go over, um, but they're, they're all a series of essentially treaties, right, between the Pope yes. and some secular rulers of Europe about how bishops are going to be appointed. And w what kind of uh, practical authority did bishops have once they were appointed? Uh, bishops were enormously powerful people. Um, they could be understood uh, sort of crudely as the ambassador of the church to the king or of the king to the church. So they were policymakers. Um, they uh, were very influential, powerful people who influenced both the secular and the religious domain. Uh, they were the guy on the spot who had the authority to make decisions. In fact, there's a quote in the book uh, from a historian uh, that talks about how everybody had an interest in who was elected as a bishop because these were such powerful figures. Okay, so I want to I want to see if I I was trying my best to follow the argument and I think I think I've got it and I like the way you just you just phrased it. You've got all of these dioceses that each are going to have one bishop is that is that how it works out? And this one is a bishop at a time. Well, okay, so let's get a little complicated. Okay, go ahead, uh, complicate it. The, the, the normal circumstance is one bishop at a time per diocese. Uh, but there were many periods where there were popes and anti-popes. Uh, and some of the people that we think of as the legitimate pope at the time uh, was the anti-pope at the time and so on. So it's, it's complicated. Can you explain anti-popes? Yeah, you know, an anti-pope is somebody... So. The, the church might have picked one person to be pope, and uh, king might have picked somebody else. Uh, or there might have been factions within the church, divided competition between families that were controlling the papacy. Uh, this is the before bishop. there was a really clear procedure for selecting a pope. A, a, exactly. And the consequence was that sometimes there was more than one bishop in residence at a time, and sometimes more than one pope. Uh, when the Council of Constance was called in uh, 1415, there were three people who were recognized by different groups of Catholics as the Pope. There was a Pope in Avignon, there was a Pope in Pisa, and there was a Pope in Rome. Okay, so with that, with that complication, uh, you, you still have a situation where the, there was a, a large controversy over exactly how bishops are going to be selected. Um, and this was a, a, the going concern for something like 100 years in the time before your writing. And these concordats kind of fleshed out a concrete procedure that more or less, not without bloodshed or controversy, but more or less settled that controversy. 
so that there was a, a stable and reliable way of selecting bishops. Well, that was the idea. Uh, that was the idea. How stable and reliable is another question, but yes, that's right. Uh, so there was an investiture controversy. Who had the right to pick bishops? Before the Concordats, in some places, the church nominated bishops. In some places, kings picked people they wanted as bishops. In some places, the bishopric was, uh, went to the highest bidder. It was sold. Uh, the sin of simony. Uh, so it was a very haphazard process. Uh, and the idea of the Concordats was to resolve the investiture controversy, which is a quite interesting controversy, uh, by creating rules by which uh, bishops would be selected. Church was the first mover. It got to nominate. And the relevant ruler, a secular ruler, was the last mover. He got to say yes or no. He could veto the choice. And in the case where the diocese is relatively wealthy, the the income generated through taxation or, or whatever ways they're generating income, if the secular ruler says no to the bishop nominated by the church, then the default would be that that the income stays with the secular ruler. Precisely. So uh, up and and up until the Concordat, from four hundred fifty year four fifty one. Until the Concordats, uh, the default was the money went to the church. A big change that the Concordat created was, no, 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 the, the default is the money stays with the secular ruler. The church holds it uh, in fiat as, as a temporary grant, conditional on, a, on the acceptance of the bishop. Okay, so then you have secular rulers with two reasons two incentives to create wealth-generating policies. They're more likely to get a bishop that is favorable to them if they're in a wealthy diocese. Uh, and also, they're more likely to get more money if they're in a wealthy diocese. Is that right? So then you have the kings the kings, and the secular rulers that are subject to these concordats who, on average, over long periods of time, have a better incentive to generate uh, wealth-creating policies rather than and the church having kind of the opposite incentive? So the church is a little bit more complicated, but that's correct about the secular ruler. Uh, so what the Concordat does is create an incentive on the part of secular rulers to stimulate the economy. Uh, before the Concordat, basically kings got rich in two ways, conquest and marriage. Now another way was open to them, economic growth. Uh, for the church, it's a little bit more complicated. The church liked growth up to the limit at which the diocese became wealthy enough that the king would co command control over the choice of a pro-king bishop. So before that, in, in poorer dioceses, the church was very interested in their getting as wealthy as they could up to that limit where the church would lose the political control over the selection of the bishop. Is it not so much that they would lose political control as that they're just, it's pretty predictable that the secular rulers will all of a sudden be much more interested in fighting for control, and so they're likely to lose control? I'm not sure I understand what the distinction is that you're making. Um, maybe there's no maybe there's no distinction. It's not like there's like some rule whereby wealthy dioceses go to the secular rulers. It's just they're going to fight harder for them and they're likely to win. Exactly. It's just that since the ruler by the structure of the agreement has the has the right to say no, the more money that is at stake, 
greater the incentive of the ruler to say no, unless the ruler gets something in exchange for saying yes. The thing to get in exchange for saying yes is a bishop who will be in the, in the secular leader's pocket instead of in the church's pocket. And that's what happened. So the percentage of, uh, of what I will call secular bishops, we talk about how I define that, uh, but the, the percentage of people who were secular bishops more than doubled in those dioceses that were reasonably moderately wealthy at the time. Whereas in the dioceses that were not wealthy, the bishops were much more overwhelmingly, as they had been before, religious. This is probably a good time to talk about some of the some of the data sets that you work with and and how you kind of code these large amounts of historical data so that you can quantify them and and do fancy political sciencey things to them. So, you know, you can you talk a little bit about how, you know, what sources sure. you engage with and how you do things like code bishops or code yeah. dioceses as wealthy or not? Yeah, let me preface that uh, with the statement that the book was written for a broad general audience. So although there's a lot, of, a lot of mathematical reasoning and a lot of statistical analysis behind the argument and the marshalling of evidence, the book is designed to be readable by people who don't know any statistics. There are no statistics in the book. There's no math in the book. My son and I have a technical paper with lots of math, lots of stats. So what constitutes a secular bishop? So I ask a simple question. What was the job of the bishop? before he became a bishop. If he worked for, uh, he was chancellor of the exchequer, he was a treasurer, he was tutor to the king's children, uh, he worked in, in, in the king's domain, uh, then the inference is that he was probably expected to do the king's bidding. Religious bishop, by my coding, is anybody who had, who had spent their prior life before becoming a bishop uh, in religious service. Uh, they were priests, deacons, uh, hermits, uh, theologians, and so forth. So the idea is, just like picking Supreme Court justices, you can't be sure what somebody will do, but you look at their background, you look at the, the things they've done before, you have a reasonable approximation of who you think they're going to be loyal to. People who worked in the secular world were on average, expected to be loyal to the secular side. People who worked in the church were on average assumed to be loyal to the church. So that's how that was coded, by reading biographies. I have data on 18,000 bishops. I think there were biographies sufficient to make this coding. I forget the exact numbers now. It's about four and a half, five thousand. 5,000. Wealth. So I have several different ways of measuring wealth. The book emphasizes whether or not a diocese was on uh, a major trade route. If you were on a trade route, chances were you would do pretty well. Uh, also, use the United Nations has estimated the agricultural productivity in very small chunks of, of Europe, five meters across. So those have been aggregated up to the diocese level. And uh, if you were above the median caloric potential, it was wealthier. If you were below, it was poorer. Um, in the paper with my son, we just revised it recently. There was a data set that came out this past September. Uh, was not available when I was writing the book. Uh, that measures urban settlements as small as 1,000 people. And so the more 
And larger the urban settlements, the more likely it is that the area was wealthy. And the theory works whether you're looking at trade routes, you're looking at caloric potential, or you're looking at population of uh, urban centers. That was my next question. Do these multiple ways of measuring wealth line up pretty nicely with each other? And it sounds like Uh, they do. Yeah, they do. So they're not terribly highly correlated with each other, but they are highly correlated with the kind of bishop that was selected once the concordat was in place um, before, shouldn't be, and wasn't. So is it fair to say, I I was wondering how this story and this book fits in with uh, contemporary economic history and scholarship on the causes and origin of the Industrial Revolution and of sustained innovation in Northwestern Europe in the 1750s and so on. It's, it seems to me that, you know, people who are tackling that question, which is a big question, emphasize a handful of variables. And, and I recently interviewed Mark Koyama and his, on his book, How the World Became Rich, where he kind of summarizes a lot of the leading research on that. And, you know, institutions play a, lar- a very large role, but that still pushes the question back one stage. What causes certain institutions to become more common and more popular? And it seems like, you know, your your book is maybe taking taking up that kind of question and pushing back the the narrative several hundred years to give an answer to why certain parts of Europe ended up with institutional arrangements that were conducive to economic growth. Does that sound about right? That's exactly right. If if the book does this, if you if you draw a plot, draw, divide the, the dioceses of Europe. Uh, into three groups, uh, those that didn't sign any concordat, uh, those that uh, were, were in France, and those that uh, are in Northern Europe. And what you discover is that uh, before the concordat, in, in, to be precise here, in, in roughly the year 1050, I think it was 1037 or 1087, uh, these three groups of dioceses were equal in their prevalence on trade routes. And they stay equal for a while. They part after the concordat is signed. So if you had been an observer at the time, you certainly would not have looked to Northern Europe as the place that was going to become prosperous. Being far from Rome was a big asset in terms of keeping the expected cost of ticking off the church low, because it was much harder for the church to enforce its punishments very far away than close. And in the, the book enumerates burning of heretics at the stake and so forth by distance from Rome. So uh, the, by, by the time you get to the late 12, early 1300s, France is much richer than everybody else. And France creates the Avignon papacy. That is, it makes the Pope a vassal of the French king. And the uh, Avignon papacy lasts for about 70 years. By the early 1400s, what is Northern Europe, far from Rome, in the wealthier places, have become much wealthier. They've, they've grown much more rapidly than the places close to Rome where the church can stifle growth. Uh, so what we see is that by the 13-1400s, we can see already the division of wealth in Europe as we think of it today. Southern Europe is poorer, the North, the Northwest is wealthier, and so forth. This is all in response to the incentive structure of the concordat. So in my view, I mean, I, I'm a great fan of the economic history that has been done, 
But I think the word cause is very strong, but I'll use it casually here. There haven't been what I would see as persuasive causal mechanisms uh, for why some places became wealthier than others. And that was one of the objectives I set out to look at, but is to explain the variation in this exceptionalism in different parts of Europe. Uh, and whether or not you signed the Concordat is a really powerful variable in sorting out. Uh, did you sign and how far were you from Rome? Those two things together produce a really strong pattern of who became wealthy and who didn't. And to become wealthy, many places had to make other sorts of concessions. They created parliaments and so forth, which we can also talk about. So, uh, yeah, long, long before the Protestant Reformation, let alone the Enlightenment or the Renaissance, uh, we already see the divisions in wealth across Europe, thanks to the Concordat. And if you are looking at the, these divisions at like different checkpoints in history, do they do they remain? Do they remain like if you check in like every couple of hundred years, you know, do, or do these divisions remain and you can see these wealth differences? I, I can imagine I can imagine objecting that. Well, now they line up, but maybe there was a period of 500 years where this was all flip flopped and it just happened yeah. to come back to this. So my book begins in 325. Uh, and it ends uh, with the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, um, there's no flip-flopping. There's clear, there, there's some breaks during during the plague, for example, in the mid-1300s. Yeah. Uh, the plague spread along trade routes. So the places that were wealthy were the ones that were especially hammered. So there's a, a setback for a while. It's not long. It's a, a few decades. And then they recover. Um, but there isn't a flip-flop of long stretches of time where Southern Europe becomes wealthy and Northern Europe is poor or whatever. Uh, there's an alternative hypothesis uh, due to Robert Lopez that says that, the, that Europe's wealth is the consequence of the commercial revolution uh, and starting in 950. Um, if you, so you plot the data and, and you see who actually capitalized on the commercialization of trade are the places that signed the Concordat and were far from Rome. Uh, those places that were near to Rome uh, or those places that didn't sign, you see no shift in their trade propensity uh, after the Concordat, only in the places that are far from Rome and signed. How do, how do the like commercial city-states in, in Italy fit into that? So the, the Italians are out, the, the city-states, uh, particularly the Veneto, were very wealthy. It was outside the Concordat. It's an exception. It had what the essence of the Concordat generated, which was competition. Uh, competition is what was creating wealth. Um, but they went up and down uh, with the exigencies of threats from the Holy Roman Emperor and from the neighboring city-states. Uh, whereas the general pattern among the signatories uh, it's kind of a steady, upward, steady upward trend. trend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how does how does this thesis how could it be generalized outside of the context of Europe? I mean, how how might you formulate the thesis in a way that that isn't so specific to you know the papacy and and European kings? It seems like a more general point you're making. Yeah, indeed. I mean, that is the focus of the last chapter of the book, which is called Today. Um, so uh, the fundamental lesson 
is let me let me back up to establish a, an important point sure. that leads to the fundamental lesson. So what was unusual about Europe in the period I'm looking at, especially after the year 800, uh, with the creation of the Holy Roman Empire, is that in most of the world, through most of human history, the head of state and the head of religion were the same person, or one was clearly superior to the other. But in Europe, after the creation of the Holy Roman Empire, the, there were two centers of power the kings, especially the Holy Roman Emperor, and the church. And they were in competition with each other. Uh, The competition they were in was to, in essence, reconcile uh, Jesus's great insight, uh, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and unto God that which is God. The church thought everything was God's and nothing was Caesar. The Caesars had a different view of that. So today, the lesson that other places can take is that we're where the power of the church and the power of the state are separated, they are equal, you know, each dominant within their own domain uh, or some other bodies, and they are competing over ideas about how people should be governed. That regulated competition stimulates innovation, and some innovation, of course, is a waste of time, but then there are innovations that are deep insights, and real progress is made, and people's lives are improved. So if we look around the the world today outside of Europe, we see that places that don't have that firm, well-structured competition between church and state, uh, don't do where where the church dominates and controls the state, or or vice versa, uh, those places don't do nearly as well on quality of life indicators, for example, or on freedom indicators as places where the church and the state are in competition, or where there are these two, there's more than one central authority. And the the multiplicity of central authorities are in regulated competition. Uh, They're not trying to kill each other. They they are coexisting in in a contest of ideas. Uh, And if places in today's world moved more strongly in that direction, I believe strongly that they would would do much better. And we see that in the evidence from Europe. Uh, If you divide the countries of Europe today, as they're defined today, into four groups, those where most of their diocese uh, signed a concordat and they were wealthier or poorer at the time of the signing, 1122, for example. Uh, So signed, poor, not poor and didn't sign, poor, not poor. So you had the Veneto, so forth, not not poor, didn't sign. So you take these four groups and you ask, for example, what is the difference in their per capita income today? Or what is the difference in life expectancy today? Or what is the difference in standard calibrations of how democratic they are today? Polity scores, Freedom House scores, that sort of thing. What you discover is exactly what the theory underlying my book tells you to expect only those that signed and were relatively wealthy at the, in, in the interlude of the Concordat in the 12th century, uh, those are the ones that have by far the highest per capita income today, the longest life expectancy, uh, greatest innovation in patents. I mean, it's across the board. The other three look alike, 
whether you signed or not, if you were poor and if you and if you didn't sign and you were rich even, you just didn't do as well as those that signed and were initially wealthy so that they had the right incentive structure. Uh, and that's an important lesson for today, that, that these regulated competitive conditions are a pathway to success. You mentioned that you had come to these general conclusions some time ago, and this is not your first published work touching on touching on this topic. How long have you been thinking about this, and how did you come to you know finally write this book? So uh, I have been thinking about this topic since the late 1990s. Uh, my first paper on the topic was in the year 2000, and this is well outside my normal research agenda. I was stimulated to look into this by pleasure reading. Uh, for for pleasure reading. Back around 1997 or so, uh, I read uh, John Baldwin's uh, biography of King Philip Augustus of France, uh, Philip IV. And as I read Philip II, sorry, as I as I read this biography, uh, I came to a passage in which he talked about the Concordat that the French had signed, how Philip never said no to a bishop that the church nominated. He always said yes. He had lots of issues with the church, which he felt mistreated him, but he thought God had been so good to him in having him born a king, he shouldn't rock the boat. And I read this passage I'm, as somebody who does game theory uh, analysis about politics, and I said, that can't be the right explanation. <laughs> that cannot be an equilibrium. Uh, and, and so I thought about what could be the equilibrium, and it was clear. I drew a little game that represented the conditions of the agreement. And it was clear that if a diocese was reasonably wealthy, the king would say no to somebody loyal to the church. The church would anticipate that and nominate somebody loyal to the king so they would at least get the money. Uh, and then I went out, I found a bunch of historical maps and so forth. Uh, and I, I coded the Baldwin had an appendix with 80, the 82 bishops chosen in France when Philip was king, 1179 to 1223, I just coded the dioceses by whether they were on, on major trade routes or not. And then I coded from Baldwin's appendix uh, whether the bishop came out, was a blood relative of the king or came out of the pope's court. And it turned out in the wealthier dioceses, two-thirds of the bishops uh, were blood relatives of Philip or his close associates. And in two-thirds of the poorer diocese, the opposite. They, they came out of the Pope's court. So I thought, okay, the thesis is looking solid, but you know, this is a very limited sample, and it's one country, and it's for a very brief period. Uh, all the things you've just read, the flip-flop, so forth, all came to mind. Uh, and so then I spent 20 years <laughs> figuring out how to assemble the data across Europe. How does some of your past work, could you give maybe a brief sketch of, of selectorate theory and, and say how that or, you know, other elements of what you usually do, political science and game theory, have come to weigh in on this book? Yeah, sure. Um, and indeed, selectorate theory does weigh in on this book. Um, so selectorate theory uh, says politicians want to come to and remain in power. Political survival is their first objective. If they can construct the circumstances so that they will stay in power, then they want as much con discretionary control over revenue as possible. 
they do three things. They raise revenue, taxes, and so forth, leaders, um, and they allocate the money across two types of policy. I'm using it a little bit more loosely than an economist would. They allocate money to public goods, national security, healthcare, education, that uh, infrastructure, that sort of thing. And they allocate money to a subset of people who support is essential to keep them in power. I call the winning coalition. So the selectorate are the set of people who have a nominal say in choosing leaders. And the winning coalition are the people who support you have to have to stay in power. So it turns out, uh, and it's very easy to show uh, logically, that if the number of people you depend on is very small, uh, then the efficient way to govern is through rent-seeking and corruption. Uh, you're much more likely to stay in power if you allow direct your, bribes, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, you, you let the small coalition members, uh, you know, go out and make themselves rich uh, by whatever means. As the coalition gets bigger, that gets to be too expensive, uh, and so you're gradually shifting to more public goods and better policy. If the coalition is large, what we think of as democratic societies, and the selectorate is large because the, the coalition is a subset of the selectorate. But if the winning coalition is small, it's possible for the selectorate to be big or small. You, monarchies and juntas have both are small, uh, and rigged election autocracies, the winning coalition is small, but the selectorate is large. So the probability, if you're in somebody's winning coalition, and, and somebody outside, a, a rival, makes you an offer, come, come, come join me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you really much richer than this guy is making you. You realize that the, sort of speaking a little casually about the logic, your chances of, of being kept in that guy's, the rival's winning coalition is how many people does that person need, the size of the winning coalition, divided by how big is the pool from which that coalition is drawn. So if the person needs very few people and it's drawn from a huge electorate, selectorate, uh, as was true in the old Soviet Union, for example, with universal suffrage, uh, then you know that your chances of being in the next guy's coalition for long is really low. And so that, may, that induces you to be more loyal to the incumbent. On the other hand, uh, if the guy needs a very big coalition as in a democracy, then your odds of being, of being needed are higher. So this has lots of consequences. The biggest consequence is the, what the welfare of individual coalition members looks like. It looks like the Nike swoosh, sort of like <laughs> that. This is coalition size. This is the welfare of individuals. And it turns out there's a critical cut point here, you see, uh, where the local benefits, that the big benefits you're getting when the coalition is very small, can be equal to the the same size benefits you get when the coalition is much larger. And if the coalition gets bigger than that up in here, you have no coups and no revolutions. So I apply this idea, there's a lot more to it, but I apply this to uh, the invention of power uh, to inquire about the size of winning coalitions and how that affected uh, growth, how that affected parliament, the creation of parliaments and a variety of other things. And again, it's very, very strong indicator of what the regimes were going to look like. Um, so part of the purpose in applying selectorate theory to parts of this book is uh, to try to overcome 
the view, especially among some historians, that this is the age of superstition and people weren't rational and they weren't calculating. And uh, well, we can, the, the same logic applies to them as to us. Uh, they, they seem to have responded in, in, in the same way to changed incentives. Uh, they did what was, what was good for them. Uh, so I work at teasing that out using selective theory. And one of the things I observe, uh, which I really not expected to even see, but uh, it just jumped out at me that I had to look at the data, uh, it was the creation of new dioceses. So as the church's power was waning, there was an explosion in new dioceses near Rome, uh, whereas most conversions were taking place far from Rome, very few conversions taking place in the neighborhood of Rome. Everybody was Catholic. Uh, but if you got up into Scandinavia and, got, you know, sort of a lot of people were not yet Catholic, the, but the proliferation of dioceses, that is votes that would support the Pope, was around the papacy, so that, around Rome. So that the Pope, seeing that his power is waning elsewhere, creates lots of new bishops. He's gerrymandering new... new uh... That's exactly what he's doing. He's yeah. gerrymandering, precisely. I was curious, how, how original is this thesis? Like, like the specific, with the specific terms of the con- tracing it back to the concordat, are you drawing on the work of others who have, I mean, just glancing briefly uh, the internet, I didn't see anyone besides you putting this much significance on these particular agreements. So this is, this is a fairly original thesis, right? Yes. Uh, th- of course, there's a, a fair amount of literature on the concordat. Sure, sure. Uh, the standard view uh, has been that the concordat strengthened the church at the expense of kings. Um, And the view that I articulate is that in some parts of Europe, where punishments were more easily doled out, the concordat strengthened the church at the expense of the secular. And in other parts of Europe, where it was harder to punish, the concordat strengthened kings. That is, it was not homogeneous. It was a heterogeneous effect. And the book demonstrates with the evidence that that's true. The general reaction to the book is very much that this is a unique thesis. And there are some who think it's unique and really cool. And there are some who think it's unique and awfully bold. And wait a minute, that can't be right. Because if that's right, what I've done is not right. So um, it's controversial. Yeah. Have you made friends in the medievalist community or enemies? Uh, what's been the general reception among like people who are specialists in medieval history and Catholic church history and things like that? So y- yes to both of those. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to name names, uh, but I, I, I certainly have made some friends and I've made some very powerful enemies. The enemies don't offer a refutation of the thesis, especially among those in the Catholic Church, there is a a discomfort with the book's emphasis on the church as essentially a power operator, as opposed to as a a religion. I have no issue with its being a religious organization, but it's being a religious organization uh, it, it's not really that important for the book, except that the, it, it was religious belief that gave it clout. But it's well, the clout that I'm interested in. It's not really controversial to claim that the church was like a genuine political authority in the time periods you're talking about. I mean, maybe it's no, no, not no, no, so no. much anymore, but... No, but it is It is among Catholic clergy. Okay. Um, so, for example, the, one of the things that the book 
repeatedly looks at is changes in the level of nepotism in the selection of the Pope as a function of how much money is at stake. And you know, there's a very clear pattern. There is essentially no nepotism in the, in the selection of the Pope of Rome prior to the creation of the papal states over which the Pope was sovereign. The key to the papal states, which were very wealthy, uh, is that the sovereign over the papal states is not something you could pass on to your brother or your, your son or your cousin. Uh, it belonged to the person who was Pope. So the solution to keeping that money in your family's hands was to make the papacy a nepotistic position. So it always remained in the family. And, and, and while the facts are there, that's somewhat upsetting to some clergy. They would, well, they would prefer this was not highlighted. In the medievalist economic historian community, there is some great enthusiasm for it. Uh, one economic historian has uh, made the point that uh, this book offers a completely new explanation of the creation of parliaments. Uh, the standard account is taxation led to parliaments and conflict. And this shows there are other things as well. Uh, and other economic historians uh, are, are concerned whether that if this is right, a lot of what they have focused on may not be right. So it's controversial. Sure. You offer a game theoretic analysis of, of why they're going to be likely to support or uh, not support yeah. your thesis. Yeah, I mean, it was ju- there was just a uh, conference uh, in Rome uh, for the 900th anniversary of the Concordat. Uh, unfortunately, it was all in Italian, so I didn't attend. But I've, I've been a colleague who kept providing me with feedback on how it was going. And uh, this colleague's paper strongly emphasized my thesis. Uh, and there was, as he described it, uh, I thought rather cautiously, a great deal of intrigue at the idea that you could talk about people 900 years ago in the, in the vocabulary of game theory, and that you could explain differences in their behavior across individuals and across time using the mathematical logic of today. Uh, so that intrigued a lot of, a lot of historians at this conference. That, that was intriguing to them. And for some, it was very exciting. And for some, it was alarming. What would you recommend for future researchers if they want to go forward and try to continue to replicate or contradict your findings? So alternative ways of measuring variables would be an important thing to do. Like of like alternative ways of deciding whether bishops are secular versus religious. Yep. Uh, so, you, you know, you want to be confident that I didn't, by happenstance, pick rules that worked in my favor. That uh, seems very unlikely because I didn't know. Because you've got a lot of them. I got a lot of them. Many, many, many thousands. Um, but there, there must be other ways of estimating these things. And that, that would be good to do. Uh, there are, for somebody who's much younger than me, uh, for example, if one went to German villages to estimate the wealth of dioceses, there were Tagebücher, books, handwritten books, of course, that they had mostly not digitized yet. Uh, of how many loaves of bread were being sold and that sort of thing, from which you can estimate population and you can estimate something about wealth. So somebody who's got 25 or 30 years to comb through those records, you know, they they could go ahead and and get a much better indicator of wealth 
uh, and see if the thesis holds up. What do you see in terms of like the analytical argument and in terms of the data sets you've relied on? What do you see as some of the main limitations that you'd like to work on in the future? Well, I don't expect that I will work on this in the future. (laughs) Uh, I've got another book in the works at the moment, which will take me another year or so, by which time I might actually retire. I would certainly like better indicators of uh, economic growth and of wealth uh, than something as crude as whether you're on or not on a trade route. As I said, since writing the book, a new data set has emerged yeah. that takes population down to communities of a, settlements of 1,000 people. And before that, it was 100,000, and that wasn't very useful. And my son and I have done a paper that used those data. We get very nice results, but much more could be done with that. Um, and you could do much more than we have done so far in estimating uh, growth from that. So there are lots of ways that uh, people could probe it. I mean, the logic This is, I suppose, a terrible thing to say, but the logic is absolutely tight. Nobody who has has read the actual game theory model has said, oh, well, no, 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 that's that's, that's not done right. It's done properly. Uh, We we, we identified equilibria. And the only thing that we are testing is whether the predictions of the game are consistent with the data. We're We're not just in an ad hoc way looking at how many of these were there and how many of that, we're looking at what the theory, that is what the terms of the conquered dot, structured as the new incentive and bargaining environment. Uh, so I don't think there's, you know, people might think about whether there's a more complicated game to construct. Simple is always better in my view. I think really the question will be more in terms of uh, how does this marry with other theses and with a better data? So there's there's a very good book by Heinrich on uh, changes in the church's rules for marriage and how that stimulated growth. I don't disagree with his thesis, uh, but his thesis doesn't explain why it worked in some parts of Europe better than in other parts of Europe in terms of growth. My thesis does. So, so, So an effort to link these things would be very interesting. His book was published too late for me to start doing that. What's the name of that book? Uh, it's got a very odd name that's an anagram, God. But it's Heinrich and it's about church marriage rules. Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll find it and I'll include it on the show notes too. So, you know, putting together those arguments, uh, there there has been a tendency among economic historians broadly interested in this question or these questions uh, to be focused on uh, particularly uh, Germany and particularly the period of the Protestant Reformation, because there's lots of good data then. But unfortunately, the action, in my view, is 400 years earlier. uh, And so there is some need for them to work their way back uh, and see how much of what they think was explained by the Protestant Reformation is actually explained by the Concordat, which, in my view, created the incentives for the Protestant Reformation. You said something in the book and and in this interview. Can you explain how the Protestant Reformation was just an like a more extreme instance of the logic of this game? So there are essentially three outcomes to the game, depending upon the wealth of a diocese. Speaking crudely, poor diocese going to be in the church's pocket and not going to grow much. Moderately wealthy diocese 
King is going to trade money for political leverage by getting to a, a, a bishop who favors the king. Really wealthy diocese, the king has no need to gain political leverage by giving up income. He can have both. And so he has no reason to see himself as making deals with the church. And that is the incentive to break from the church. So in 1309, the French broke with the church with the Avignon papacy. They they didn't have uh, the idea of a new religion. They had the idea, well, we'll only pick Frenchmen to be popes, and they will do what we tell them. You you run that forward a century, uh, two centuries later, uh, and there is as well the idea, well, you don't have to care about what what the people in Rome think. You have your own religion. And Protestantism was particularly successful at spreading uh, in Northwestern Europe, in the wealthier parts of Northwestern Europe. If you you looked at the parts of Germany that became Protestant and the parts that remained Catholic, uh, the Catholic parts were poorer than the parts that became Protestant. So the thesis says, if you get enough wealth, you don't have to trade power for money. You can keep the money and have the power. And that's the end of the religious monopoly of the Catholic Church. It is, in essence, a return to what Christianity's environment looked like. Uh, If you go back to Emperor Constantine in in the 300s. What other, you you mentioned one just a second ago, but what other works might you recommend that would complement this book? There's um, not... It's a, it is a very original thesis. So it's a trailblazing not, book, so it's going to be tough. <laughs> well, it's either a trailblazing book or a, a book that's going to fall off a cliff. Um, time time will tell. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, it, 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 there's not a lot of other stuff that builds around this because it's a, it's really a new thesis. Um, of course, the the most prominent thesis about what we today speak of as Western exceptionalism is Max Weber's uh, Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, written around 1900. Uh, and Weber didn't have access to the kinds of data that are available today, uh, and he didn't have access to the analytic tools that are available today. Uh, he had very limited statistics available, to, uh, statistical analysis available to him, and he had no game theory. Um, and in my view, his thesis is, Completely incorrect. He has put the cart before the horse. The Protestant Reformation is a consequence of the Concordat. Of course, it, it, it adds to the growth, but it's not the source. Uh, but people should read him because he is the central thesis. And in his view, it's more like a, uh, an intercultural attitude that comes from belief in Protestantism. Yeah, and from, from literacy. There's a book by a guy named Rubin. Uh, that, that pushes things back from Weber to the mid-1400s when the Guggen, uh, Gutenberg Bible was first published in 1450, uh, that the spread of literacy was where the uh, action was. And again, uh, against that, I've got a nice graph in the book that shows uh, that Northern Europe, um, what is today Protestant Europe, uh, surpassed the rest of Europe in uh, wealth uh, well before the Gutenberg Bible, well before the Protestant Reformation. Uh, so the pattern was already there, 
and was just carried on and reinforced by those developments. They weren't the causal mechanism. Why is the book called The Invention of Power rather than The Invention of Wealth? Well, uh, because my publisher thought this was a good title. Uh, I had a completely different working title. It is, a, it is a powerful title, pardon the pun. It, 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 it's a striking and eye-catching cover and title. It is, a, it is, it is both. I agree with that. Um, I liked it when they proposed the title. The book is really not so much about the invention of power as it is about the differential creation of power. That seems a little bit too... Not as catchy. Ivory Tower. So you mentioned you're working on another book right now. Can, can you say anything about that? Sure. Uh, Alistair Smith, my colleague and co-author and my former student, and one of the uh, originators along with me and two other colleagues in Selectra Theory. Uh, Alistair and I are expanding some of the elements of the Selectra Theory, and we are writing a book on political instability. So we are asking the, a set of questions about the conditions under which leaders torture and kill people, their, their, own, their own citizens, uh, the conditions under which they change the mix of policies between public and private goods, and the conditions under which they, be, they liberalize their government or, or become more autocratic. Um, we have an enormous amount of analysis done. Uh, the expanded theory works phenomenally well. We also have a new measure of coalition size. It's continuous and very powerful. So this, this book is it's in the writing stage. My guess is that we will finish it around the end of this year or a couple of months into next year. And then a year later, it'll be published. Probably will be called Political Instability or maybe Domestic Political Instability. That's exciting. I, I remember in... Um the dictator's handbook, the re revised edition, and you have a portion where you talk about more contemporary events in the United States and how you guys are relatively, feel relatively confident that we're not likely to backslide into a, a seriously autocratic situation and, and that there are really no good examples of a society with a large co winning coalition and a large selectorate, you know, reverting back to a small one. Is that still your, your view in this book? Yeah, absolutely. We test this question, and the evidence is really overwhelming. So again, it's this welfare yeah. function. There's shape. a tipping point where There's it just doesn't go point. back. Right. We are able to show theoretically and in the evidence that if you're past this, this cut point, uh, or if you're sufficiently small, uh, then there is zero probability of a, of a successful revolution. Uh, and if you're past that cut point, there's also zero probability of a successful coup. At the other end, that's not true, of course. And that's for logical reasons, uh, because you can't make enough people better off by backsliding. You can only make people, once you're past that cut point, you can only make people better off by becoming more accountable. Uh, we have data for over 200 years for every country in the world, as it existed at any time in that period. And there is not, let me rephrase that, the only examples of countries that had passed this cut point and for a while stopped being democratic were countries that were conquered by Nazi Germany during World War II. So they didn't internally. External conquest was the was External the conquest. And of course, as soon as the Germans were ejected, 
you know, the Dutch became democratic and the French became democratic again and the Belgians became democratic and so on. So there are no examples where by domestic conflict, any of those countries have backslided away from democracy. They wiggle around up in here. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not just one point. They, they wiggle, but they wiggle in a very small range. Uh, so if you look at um, Donald Trump's presidency, uh, say compared to Barack Obama's or earlier, by our estimate of winning coalition size, this cut point where it is is, is complicated thing, but let's say it's roughly on a zero to 100 scale, it's roughly at, at 90. Uh, the U.S. backslid during the Trump period from about 96 to about 93. You know, in terms of backsliding. Where like a typical authoritarian like autocracy would be where in that on that scale, just to give a sense. So Russia is 52. Okay. Uh, China is about 0.17, about 17. Saudi Arabia is about 10. Being down here, which is where Russia is, really dangerous place to be. But Um, basically, you know, stable democracies remain stable democracies is is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, Well, that's heartening. I'm encouraged. I mean, I I I, I believe the theory, uh, <laughs> and and there's a lot of evidence. Time time will tell. There's certainly a great effort to prove the theory wrong, and it would be a very big deal if it's wrong. We will see. But people got pretty resistant when they began to see threats. Okay. Well, I'll stay tuned. Can you say where people can find you if they want to keep up to date with your work? Ah, I am a terrible person in that regard. Um, <laughs> I have a homepage, which I don't even remember how to get to. I am not very good at posting, but, you know, books they can find anytime on Amazon. Uh, my email address is readily available by looking at uh, me on NYU. So if they have a question, they can reach out. If I have the time, I will answer. And if it's a crazy question, you know, maybe I will, maybe I won't. Um, <laughs> Alistair is very good at, look at his Page. He is very good at maintaining things. Is uh, your co-author Alistair? Is he on Twitter? Alistair Smith. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll include him as well, and I'll put I'll put your author bio on Amazon and your NYU page in case anyone wants to reach out to you, and certainly sure. your book. Great. My guest today has been Bruce Bueno de Mosquita, and his book once again is The Invention of Power: Popes, Kings, and the Birth of the West. Bruce, thank you so much for joining me on Ideas Having Sex. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.